most of it is dictated by understanding what type of advantage we're dealing with. This is something that came from soccer and positional play that you can have like a numerical advantage, you can have a qualitative advantage, or you can have a positional advantage. And we've kind of translated them into, you can have numbers. The second one is, do you have a matchup that works for you? And then the last one is the action. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of Telecom Baskets Bonn and Germany's BBL, Thomas Isalo. Coach Isalo is here today to discuss building out a playbook, teaching and repping advantage decisions, and we talk handling pressure and unconventional leaders during an always fun start, sub, or sit. Coaches looking to both support the podcast and connect and learn from other coaches around the world, becoming a member of Slapping Glass Plus does both. Please check out slappingglass.com for yearly, monthly, and staff rate options to get complete access to thousands of hours of curated and topical XNO and leadership content. Thanks for the support. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Thomas Isalo. We are really excited to be joined now by Coach Thomas Isalo. Coach, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We're really excited to talk to you. I hope I was close with the pronunciation. First of all, thank you for inviting me. It's been a long time coming. And yes, you did an excellent job with that. So I'm already <laughs> stoked for that. <laughs> thank you. I've been, I've been practicing all morning on that. So coach, we're excited to talk to you about a lot of stuff today, both on and off the floor, basketball wise. But we wanted to start with your concepts and your thoughts on building out your playbook for a season and all that sort of the things that you think about that go into how you're going to build that playbook from the ground up. Well, first of all, I think it's a process. Like the playbook you start with very rarely is the playbook you finish with. Then the second part is that like installing plays and systems is extremely stimulating for coaches. It's even addictive. I know like that was one of the things that got me hooked on coaching was thinking about the X's and O's. And I think every coach wants to help the team, help the players provide them with options, solutions to create easy baskets and basketball that looks nice. But then you got to balance that out with the fact that the more stuff you're going to run, the generally the less good at it you're going to be. So our process is pretty simple. We start with our, if we talk about like putting in a playbook, we'll start with our early offenses, which I mean, some teams do, some teams don't. We're one of the teams that actually runs an early offense. And for us, that's not only like something that we'll use throughout the season, but it's also a teaching tool. So for example, the offense, we call it flow. It features like three different pick and rolls with three different spacings. And that gives us tools to work on different opponent coverages in the future, but also our own defense. So our base defense against those very common situations. So we start with that and then we build from there, mostly from the stuff that we finished 
the previous season. So stuff we know how to coach first and foremost, because it's very difficult to coach stuff that you don't intricately know, and you don't know the different solutions to different problems. And then you kind of check it out, like if that stuff works with this team and what the tempo of progression should be. So most of the stuff in the beginning is going to be like, we'll maybe have like three sets in the beginning or three families or series or however you want to call it. And we'll start building on those, but there will be stuff from last year. So we can also gauge where we're at with this year's team, because there's always a, like you have, a, obviously you should have as a coach on a professional level, an idea like who you've recruited, but at the same time, things don't stay the same. And you might be surprised by a guy that actually he can do a lot more than we thought in this area. And another guy would be like, oh, I thought he'd be better here. And then you kind of adjust the blueprint. But we try to start with a pretty basic setup every year and kind of take it from there and then adjust accordingly. Coach, interested in the installation of the playbook early in the season and how much you give to your team, let's say within the first week, you know, I know eventually you're going to build and build and have tweaks and see how things go. But, you know, I'm thinking maybe about like sets, how many plus or minus do you put in maybe say the first couple of weeks when you're building out your team? Well, when you said first week, my answer would be very simple. That's plus minus zero. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, let's start first week. So, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, we try to have like a period where we reverse engineer the whole process. And we start with the end in sight. So we start with the closeout decisions, penetration automatics. These are huge for us because they're going to be the end product of a good offense. You don't want that to be the sticking point. After this, we go to what we would call like actions or spacings. So we will start working on specific spacings. In our case, the last four years, they've been what we call a wing pick and roll. So that's an empty side pick and roll with all four other guys outside or all three other guys outside the three-point line. Then we have a spread pick and roll, which I believe a lot of teams call shake pick and roll or angled pick and roll, like 60 degrees going to the two side. And then we use a top pick and roll with two lifts behind, either directly in the middle or a little bit more toward the elbow. So we start working on those three and there's a you no know, specific reason for that is they are featured heavily in our offense, but they're also stuff that makes up the most of also the opponent stuff in the BBL. So you see those very often. And if you don't do a good job with those defensively, also, you're going to be in a world of trouble. So that's it. And after all of this, after we feel, you know, pretty comfortable with that, we'll add like an entry to it. So then we're talking about like something like what we use a lot, like a 4-2 pin into a guard guard or a pass handoff action or an Iverson or Diamond. And that stuff is to like add it on top of that because then you have the coverage decisions already down, at least against your own team. And you know also that once you've created an advantage through the pick and roll, you know what to do with it as a team. So you have very strong team reactions. So that's how we would generally start with it. We're going to really dig into your pick and roll offense. I'd like to just go back to what you said earlier with your early offense. And I'd really like to hear your thoughts on actions you like to run in the early offense and the spacing you like to use. I'll start with the weaknesses. So I know a lot of coaches don't run early offense because it's easily becomes like mush 
you know, that you don't have a fast break and then you're just kind of running a drag screen with no tempo and no details and everything like this. So it takes a lot of time and effort to combine those two things that they're not eating from each other, that you have clear designations between fast break and early and then the set place. We try to have like a five lane fast break that we are filling in all of the lines. The ball is generally on the, not on the wing lane, but what we call a guard lane or a spread lane. And then mm-hmm. the middle is reserved for the five man. So the five man's decisions are pretty simple. If he can beat his own guy, he'll rim run. If he can't beat him, most likely he'll drag. Now this will change a little bit if we have an empty corner. So we'll swing all of the guys one position forward. The ball handler will be closer to the sideline. And then we'll run the two and the three generally to the corners and the four will be spaced out in a position that we call spread spacing. So he will be pretty wide on that. The early offense actions that we use, we have, like I said, our flow offense, where we go from that spread ball screen, which is usually one to five. We go to a wing ball screen with the two, four, and then we come back to the top for a, another one, five, but in a different angle. So the big usually is coming from the elbow and a point guard is receiving the ball. That's, I think, probably the most common. We also run like a ball screen motion where we move the ball side to side. And we have obviously different reads on that. That comes a little bit later. And then depending on the personnel that we have that year, also we will run some off screens like let's say a dummy drag, what we call the dummy drag. So the guy is not actually screening, but he's wide pinning out of that. I think this is referred to as the veer screen mm-hmm. in the US terminology. That's something that we also use. And then if we have wings that are bigger or there's a mismatch in transition, we might look for the post up right away and just get into spacing and play out of that. Most of it is dictated by understanding what type of advantage we're dealing with. So we try to, like, this is something that came from soccer and positional play that you can have, like, uh, I don't know if you guys are, you know, familiar with that, but it's something, for example, Guardiola uses, but you can have like a numerical advantage, you can have a qualitative advantage, or you can have a positional advantage. And we've kind of translated them into, you can have numbers, which most of the time obviously happens in transition. So that should be the main mechanism. So you should try to create that as much as possible, like a four on three or, or three mm-hmm. on two, or well, obviously the best one is one against zero because everybody else <laughs> can start matching up already. So even a five on four type of situation. Then the second one is, do you have a matchup that works for you? So that would be the case, for example, with this post up in transition or a front room seal for the five man against a wing who had to help in. So that would be something that we look for. If we have that right away, we can go into it. Or guard is matched up or a guard has a big man who he can take off the dribble and we can just space it out and we know what we're doing. And then the last one is the action, you know, and then that would be one of those aforementioned things. Coach, how are you training the recognition of these certain advantages in transition with your team? Well, it's difficult. It's really difficult. There's no, like, uh, I wouldn't say there's a magical drill for this. The one we use a lot is what we call the chaser drills, you know, where one guy will touch the baseline, which is, it's generic and we're not huge fans of it, but we haven't come up with anything smarter. So (laughs) we're just relatively simple guys from Finland. So we've stuck with it. And that's pretty clearly, you know, you have a numbers advantage going one direction. 
then when you're coming back, okay, you might have a numbers advantage or you might have a matchup somewhere or yeah. you flow into an action. So this is one of the things we use, but we try to also visualize it through the video, through like the help, which usually comes from the two side, if you got the rim runner so that you can throw the skip, play out of that and create closeouts right away in the offense if the big is covered. But it's not something easy. There's also some pretty counterintuitive stuff like what we experience is the guards in numbered situation. They often like to pass it forward which we really don't like to do, but we actually like to provoke one defender to guard the ball and uh -huh. then move it so we can add to the percentage of like uh, numbers we have. If on a five on four, we can engage one defender on the ball and then move it forward, it becomes a four on three, which is better than a five on four for us, for example, like this. And then we try to create situations that are also like chaotic and that the players have to find certain structure within that while not losing like one of our focal points, which is the very fast tempo and pace with which we play at. And this is incredibly difficult, you know, because in the beginning, just the pace to create that is a challenge. But after that, when you add structure, what happens to the pace is it obviously goes down right away and you cannot accept this as a coach. And at the same time, they must make these decisions that like a decision action coupling that they must at the same time see and do the right things. And this takes a lot of work, obviously, and uh, very good habits from players. You mentioned it too. Uh, you'll use video to teach, but how much on the court are you stopping and teaching versus letting them play it out and try to problem solve themselves? It depends. Like all things, it depends. We try to break down segments into like teaching segments and competition segments. And the competition segments are like things that will set up the conditions. And then it's up to the players to figure out a way to win. And we will not like stop the flow of the game. Okay. If you ask our players, they will say, yes, they stop it, but it's, it's because of, you know, some serious infractions, but, but obviously you can't let everything slide, but generally we let them play it out and there's going to be like flyby feedback on mm -hmm. the fly we're going to be there we're going to be reminding them sometimes in not so nice way other times more with a positive aggressiveness and then there's going to be huddles right after the play ends you know for a very quick short feedback like what do we do and what is the next winning play so this is generally what we would do in those competitive drills that they are also not like we roll the ball out and then we do it like they will get yeah. feedback on several topics depending on what the emphasis is in that drill now in the learning things this is completely different so there's something that we picked up from pedro martinez clinic was that okay we'll use drills where the offense is working for the defense for example so if the defense is working on a concept and the offense is working for them so there's not a lot like there's no competitive element and First, it'll be like scripted, then it'll be guided, which means that, okay, it still can be somewhat randomized, but it's not competitive and it's not full speed. And then we will go to the competitive mode. So the players should know like which one are we in. So they have also the trust that they can make mistakes in the learning drills and in the competitive drills, they need to find a way to win. Coach, how much time do you like to spend on the learning segment? as far as so you don't bog the guys down trying to overteach, but then also get to the competitive and keep them moving and, you know, 
drilling it in real time? First of all, the learning is lifelong. Like we don't have any illusions that we once, you know, taught the thing that the players have learned it. So this takes on average a lot longer time. And generally in our system, the second year guys are better and the third year guys are better than the second year guys. If we look at it on a daily basis, we don't really have warmups in practice. We use it as conceptual work. So let's say we have 20 minutes for the what we call the warm-up period, what others call warm-up period, that'll be like conceptual work for us. So it'll slowly pick up the speed from very basic drills that we do, like footwork drills or defensively, like footwork drills or close-range finish drills offensively. And it's at the same time, it kind of progresses from in complexity. So let's say we have six minutes of something like that's individual work if I use offensive examples. So it might be close range finish tied to a certain theme, like a top pick and roll. So the guards are coming off that. The bigs might have something off the roll. Then we work on the interactions. So we work on the different functional units and we might combine like, let's say ones and fives if we're talking about a top pick and roll. And we'll work on different coverage solutions from there that where these guys have to interact depending on the context of the next opponent or at this point of the season, we're in preseason, we're working on things that we're going to see in the BBL the whole season or early in the season. And then the last part will be like a bigger group. So we will combine these functional units into, let's say, minimum four against four, which we're not huge fans of, but five against five would be better. But if you've got 12 guys, you can have three groups going and you can have a lot of repetitions and a little bit different opponents too. So that works. And maybe all of these like close range finish, six minutes, interactions, six minutes, then the like offensive shell, for example, yeah. is eight minutes. And that's your 20 minute warm up. And it's getting at the same time more complex as the time goes on, but also the tempo is picking up. So after this, we would have what we call like dynamic stretching, yeah. you know, which takes like three to four minutes. So we are pretty minimalist on all of that stuff. We don't have like a designated that we do something to prepare for basketball. Like Jose Mourinho, the soccer coach, said that a pianist doesn't run around the piano to get warmed up for, for, <laughs> for his sessions. So we just do the like, I believe it's called scales. You know, okay. so yeah. those basic things, yep. you know, and we review them and they're always in the context of the opponent or then something to work on our concept. And we try to balance this out, like so that the next day we'll have the warm up period will be defensive concepts. Mm -hmm. And there we'll work on something like a footwork drills in the pick and roll coverage drills or protection drills, put those together. And these are also like the interactions. They're driven by the position specific skills also. So we might have like talking about the offense again, in one end in the interactions, we're working on the one fives are working on the coverage solutions. And then the three other guys are working on spacing. Like for example, the two side reactions on the opposite side. And then we combine those two things. So we try to like simplify it instead of like put it into parts. We try to simplify each guy's role and then bring the complexity and the speed up at the same time. And this is how we use kind of our warmups. And after this, now I'm going through our whole practice structure. Yeah, it's okay. No way. <laughs> but, uh, people are falling asleep already. But after this, like we do the stretches mainly so that after that, we can start with the competitive part. Mm -hmm. So this might be like a transition game, which are 
probably the most taxing that we do. We really try to ramp it up and overload certain aspects of it. Like if we think like technical, tactical, physical, mental, like we try to push the players in all of those aspects until failure happens. So that's something that in that part of the practice, we are basically throwing monkey wrenches, you yeah. know, into the team's execution, trying to bring failure. And the players must try to like keep the structure and keep the tempo, for example, in these transition drills with all of the chaos that's going around them and the speed being, you know, over tempo, for example. And at the same time, coaches, you know, screaming something at you and, and you still got to function and find a way to apply the feedback at the same time. Or we will do like then what we call a breakdown block. So we'll do, if we have an offensive warm up, we'll do a defensive breakdown block where again, depending on the opponent or here yeah. in the preseason going through certain checklists of where we are, but those are going to be most of the time competitive drills. And again, they go up in complexity. Out of this, like then as the last part, it, this will 90% of the time be five on five stuff, which also the transition stuff often is. And some yeah. of the defensive breakdown stuff is also, but we kind of go like one, two, three, then one, two, three. I don't believe at all in that the practice has to have a theme that you go through like one theme in a practice. We rather like none of the skill acquisition says this that you should do everything at once. And so we rather want to remind the players on regular intervals of what the things are. See, when it starts to deteriorate, we will then, okay, this is something we need to go through now, but kind of have like a microcosm of the whole system every day yeah. in practice for the most part. Sometimes it's not possible I know we tried to do this in pre-games a couple of years ago also, like <laughs> the day before. I think it was a little bit overkill. We might have lost the game because we overdid it. And then we were able to tone it down a little bit. But in general, you know, you can't really avoid work if you want to touch on most like phases of the game yeah. every day. But the drills are just going to be different. The situations are going to be different, you know. So that's pretty much our daily process right there. Coach, I wanted to go back to something that you said really early on that I'm really interested in, and that was drilling the types of actions that you want your team to play from on a closeout. So you talked about reverse engineering your offense so that you play through the endings of actions. What are the ways that you try to teach like the ending of actions and what specifically maybe you want your team to play out of, whether catch and shoot or move it or drive it or all the different scenarios, but how do you teach the end of actions? We put them in those situations and we check out how comfortable they are. So one of the things we have a little bit different view on is what an open shot is. So open shot for us is something where the offensive player, he has enough space and time basically to not change his shot. So what that means, he doesn't have to hurry his shooting motion or he doesn't have to put more arc in it or change the form. And as long as these parameters are in place, it's a wide open shot in our category because physically nothing has changed. The only thing that's blocking the player is the mental side, which it's uncomfortable if somebody's close to you, but he's not doing anything. So we try to put the players into those situations, get them more comfortable, but also to find their sweet spot 
of where that is. For some guys, they need the defender to be further away, whereas others have no issue, even if the player is right there. So that's, I think, the first thing. After this, we we work on also like different footworks, especially with guys coming first time to Europe. They like to open step. And these are things that we start right away teaching because it's very different, the interpretations of the rules in the U.S. in college, for example, than it is in Europe. So basically, the first one we would start with is the shot drive decision based on the closeout. And here we will use like scripted or guided for the most part, like if we're talking about a warm up or a skill session that's not taped up. After this, we introduce the other players. So we add one more, like the new triple threat is what we call the 0.5 decisions, which is simple, not easy, you know, shot, drive or pass. And we have a relatively, you know, simple flow chart that if you're open, you take the shot. If he runs you off the line, you drive it. If your closest teammate is more open than you are, you pass the ball to him. So this is how we structure our whole offense through these simple rules can be called heuristics or rules of thumb, but that they are like action language, that it's not something that's, you know, that we try to impress the players, but we try to make it into something very simple to understand. And then we start working on those situations again by increasing the complexity as we see the player's progress. So we want to keep them thoroughly in the deep end. So the problematic side for the players is as soon as they show mastery in one of these things, we will you know, move the goalposts or raise the bar, so to speak. Mm -hmm. to bring about struggle, which is the key. I mean, this is from the great David Epstein book, Range, where he talks about that people think that the key to development is repetition, but it's really struggle more than repetition. And this is what we try to introduce on different levels, be it technical, tactical, physical, or mental side. And for this, obviously, you need what the Germans call the Fingerspitzengefühl, so you got to have a, like a feeling of when this player has passed a certain threshold or the team and that we can move on to the next phase. And with every team, it's going to be a little bit different. And with the players, it's going to be different. The player doesn't exist in a vacuum. So he will need that teammate. And let's say a player catches a skip pass and now has makes a drive decision. Okay, He's got to trust that if he makes the right decision out of the closeout that is closest teammates and actually all of the four teammates, but especially the closest teammates have the same mental models or that they follow the same principles as he does. So let's say you're being dribbled at, we call you must space away. Okay. You're being dribbled away. You must lift behind. So we are constantly connected. And this is also something that you cannot do without a very high degree of focus because you've got to be constantly connected to every other player. There's no two-man game where three other players are watching, but everybody has a job. There are just different roles and responsibilities in those situations. And this is most of our work is on this. And this is also what we start with in the preparation. So those individual closeout decisions, and then how everybody else must react to those decisions. And we also have then principles that will guide those. So for example, in the closeouts, we use the term, which is stolen, like all of our stuff from others, stolen from the Spurs is the 
like 0.5 decisions. So you must make a quick decision and you cannot hold on to it. And we say like a quick decision is better than, you know, right decision. And this is always gets people like, huh? Like, what do you mean with this? But it's all about setting the environment. So when we run like advantage drills, for example, like we'll run something where we'll force a hard close out and somebody puts you in a rotation. Like we will stop the drill. Like the defense wins once the 0.5 decisions end. So we give you the advantage, but at the same time, you're under constant time pressure. You know, to make quick decisions. So it's not just something we say, hey, like we verbally you know, correct. It's just like, you're not going to win if you don't do this. So we force them into that environment and then the environment actually lets them figure out the solution. So we first provide the questions and then, you know, they, of course, in cooperation with us, we find out the solutions together. This is a big part of what we do. Coach, I think when you talk about connectivity of all the players, we also like to, we've been talking a little bit about the playbook and setting that up, uh, but now adding the pick and roll into it. I know your teams play with such great pace and flow within the pick and roll and how you build the same building blocks you do with the playbook, but now just around your pick and roll actions, how does that come into play for you? Yeah, well, that one starts like right, like hand in hand with the closeout decisions and what we call the driving kick game, which is like, penetration automatics so we started to work on with what we call like functional units so one of the functional units would be like the ball handler and the screener so they form one if their coverage decision so uh, how they are using the screen and how they're rolling if it's not compatible against whatever coverage the opponent is doing nothing else will really matter they will need to be on the same page. And we try to recruit also for this. So it's part of our like complex systems approach that we try to create a whole that's bigger than the sum of the parts that the players actually like complement each other. We don't think about like in terms of individual players, but I think last year it was a great example. We had Trey Bell Haynes, who got selected as the best offensive player in the league, played with Bogdan Radosalevich, who was a, stretch five and Trey was a downhill guard who got to the free throw line a lot. So we kind of inverted the spacing. So the guard was going into the pain. The big guy was popping back. And our other pick and roll duo was Nimrod Hilliard and Jumani McNeese. And they specialized in playing with the lob and playing through that and playing through the pull-ups and everything like this. So it was not an accident why those two players were paired with each other because they have compatible skill sets. And this is something we try to find out. Like I said, we generally start with stuff we know, and then pretty fast we'll see like if it takes off or not. Usually we have pretty good intuition on what works and whatnot. But like two years ago, we attacked the, like a weekend coverage, like a downing coverage by coming a step, like using a step up screen, like turning the angle, flipping the screen angle. And this just put us in a situation where we were all the time, like on a one-on-one situation with the big, our guard was in a one-on-one situation. And we scrapped that after two games of scoring in the sixties and then against good defenses. But still it was like, It's got to work basically right away for us to have some like positive feedback. And then we went to a completely different where we, you know, dive the five behind X5 and the guard was quick enough, Dwayne Russell, 
to also get into the pain and we created a lot of lobs. Then the low man started helping and the skips were open, etc. And this clicked right away. Whereas last season we played with Trey and Boggy, we would pop behind, pass it. And then like the terminology we use is keep the engine running. So if the shot wasn't there, Boggy could go to either guy, either the guy who passed it or the secondary ball handler on the wing and kind of use that initial advantage for the next one, maybe to break off a coverage or, or something like this. And we worked on this type of things a lot. Like that's part of the bringing structure to that complexity that we are able to re-space during the offense and find those most likely the three spacings that we started with the wing spread or top somewhere else and other guys are going to space accordingly okay so that's going to be one thing that we work on then it's a completely other job for the three other guys who will get more reps on the closeouts who will play really have to be connected to the ball space lift we might use like we use also the obradoro the flare drift concepts against some teams that were next thing. Other times we would 45 dive against the next. Everybody has a job and it's our job kind of to have everything like the big plan in mind and make sure that they are compatible. It's a relatively simple profession, you know, coaching. You got to have a good plan. It doesn't have to be a great plan. You got to have a good plan. And then you got to get everybody to execute the plan. You know, yes. so which is oftentimes the more difficult part <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because not everybody might not be, you know, on the same yeah. page or, or really simple. For, yes, yes. <laughs> what we say often is simple, not easy. <laughs> so yeah, right. These, these are these are two different things, but on paper, it sounds very simple. And that's where the trust comes from because the players, they know if I'm going to do this, okay, the other players are also going to take care of their job. You know, and we're all going to be on the same page, no matter what type of situation it is. And we can run the whole shot clock to 24 seconds by reorganizing. Like the big difference between those two teams, for example, was the 1920 was a great, great driving kick team, like really good driving kick team. And 2021 was a terrible driving kick team, you know, <laughs> and we try to bang our heads against the wall for a while. And then we're like, okay, the problem is us. You know, we got to adjust. We like that we had it. And what happened is we changed into like a multiple pick and roll team. So we would have to create a little bit bigger advantages, whereas the previous team could play with smaller advantages in the closeouts. This team needed a little bit bigger. So we run first pick a roll. Okay, the window is not big enough. Let's run the second one, third one, and all the time reorganize around that, looking for the quote unquote wide open shot on the outside. And then, you know, rebound hard and not relax. But it's uh, like you also have to have a feel for this. But we started from the same point, but it just took on like different tangents. Hearing you talk about how you attack different coverages, how did you find the balance and practice to learn how to attack these coverages when your team doesn't necessarily always play these coverages? Yes, that's a great question. And I think like that's something that every coach struggles with because <laughs> once you put your own guys to do the opponent coverage it's like sometimes it can seem like they forget everything yeah. and there starts to be like stuff that's completely unrelated to your own thing so we'll do those a lot of times like let's say two on zero like the coverage mm -hmm. decisions but they have seen it on the video so they have a mental image of what it is or we will walk it through five against five 
you know? So it's very important that they have a mental image. Like anything against zeros is useless unless there's very strong context, like that you know exactly like what you're working on. And you have to have really good focus for this. Then we might use coaches as guided defenders, depending obviously on the resources, like how many coaches you have right there, because you need somebody to have feedback also and actually watch what they are doing. Or we go scripted, guided out of that, or then even competitive. If we have like a second team, we can use the second team guys or the younger guys to build up a library for them. So let's say... It's not going to be the same, but it's still going to be better than what a lot of people call dummy defense. Still going to be better that they're competitive, they make mistakes, but they also learn that there are different ways to do things. And then sometimes we just choose the smartest guys and put them on defense and know that they're not going to, you know, F it up when (laughs) when we go back to our own concepts. I would say that's it in a nutshell, that it's there's no perfect solution to that, but we try to get by. Well, yeah, I really like what you said there about just providing strong context. The overall philosophy in regards to the scouting and the weekly preparation is that I would use the analogy that when game day comes, the players or like when the test comes in the school, they're like, but I have seen these questions already. I looked them up actually, you know, the past three, four days without maybe them even knowing it, they've been in those situations. It's like, okay, this makes sense. This has happened. And obviously this puts a lot of pressure on the coaches to have somewhat of guesswork also, like what are we going to see? But mostly teams are going to be pretty solid in what they do. So there might be two, three things. And if a team, you know, throws the kitchen sink at us, (laughs) like we say, like we had (laughs) one game last year where in the first half, we saw five different defenses. Wow. We saw a hard show. We saw a drop. We saw under. Then they went into a switch and then they zoned up and we scored 60 points in that half because we knew this was going to happen. And everything we, our preparation was about that this is going to happen. Let's make sure we keep the engine running. We have the solutions for everything. It's all about us figuring out what are we going against now, getting on the same page. And knowing when they do several things that they will not be very comfortable with those things. So they're doing this for a reason because they don't trust that what they usually do is going to be enough. And this should put a lot of confidence in our team. And we trust our daily work in that it's going to be better than a team that throws, you know, a million things at you. Coach, this has been awesome. We're really enjoying this. I'm giving you guys way too much. I know. No, no. I'm running out of notes on my sheet. Yeah, I have, I've run out of notes too. Um, but coach, we would like to move now to a segment that we call start, sub, or sit. We're going to give you three different basketball topics, ask you to start one, ask you to sub one, and ask you to sit one. You have not heard these questions beforehand, so these are just off the cuff. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm already sweating here. So, <laughs> well, Coach, we'll have some fun with this. So the first start sub sit for you, the concept is tough to teach. So which one of these three are the toughest to teach from a coaching standpoint, having to do with pressure? So toughest things to teach, start sub or sit, teaching Inbounding the ball against pressure. So the person taking the ball to bounds and being poised, taking it in maybe against the press. Making late game free throws. So pressure free throws. Or handling getting trapped. 
the backcourt, frontcourt, teaching a player to just be poised within a trap. So start, sub, or sit, the toughest to teach of those three concepts. I'm going to answer like 80% of these with it depends. <laughs> <laughs> you fit right in with everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. We, <laughs> I'm categorically against this <laughs> that I have to put like, like clear, but I would say I will sit the getting trapped. So that's something I think just the team needs to be very organized and have a plan for this. I think most of the time you have issues with that if it catches you off guard or if guys are relaxing. But if you're engaged in doing the things that we work on, this should actually lead to the outcome that we want, which is to create a number situation right away. So we would actually invite this from the other teams and say, thank you. And we'll take the numbers and play with that because that's how we always play. It's still not easy to teach, but it's something that we would like to do. Then I would probably sub... The inbounding, just because I don't think we work on it enough. Okay. So out of base inbounds or full court pressure sometimes gets lost in the shuffle. But when you look at synergy play types, there's a lot of unforced turnovers happen in those situations and they lead to live ball turnovers. And generally, that's something where you also got to figure out like who can you have in that position? Like you said, that they are poised and that they have a little bit of misdirection in them, that they can use the eyes and the shoulders to give wrong information for the defense and still make the passes at the right time. But this is also a design issue. And then probably start with the late game free throws. This is something that we generally try to work with, with a time and a score. Also, because of this reason to put that to give the players a real sense of pressure also in the practices we have in our shooting drills we always got to call out like if we got 12 guys shooting at the same time we got to call out game winner before you're going to make that shot also same thing you got to finish a practice with a certain amount of made free throws if you're the last one you're going to hear after you know or before your last shot you're going to hear you know game winner in the gym and everybody's watching you so we do try to put a lot of emphasis on that and at the same time might need some let's say technical changes but most of all i think it's like the environment that is very different from the practice uh -huh. so i think players are used to doing it in a like a what's it called um not like serial or random practice but in a row sure like a blocked yeah blocked that was the word yeah, yeah that i was looking for thank you for that <laughs> and we try to do it more as like a serial thing. We try to also incorporate different type of skill acquisition methods here. So we will scramble with the shot. We're not afraid of like doing stuff like going off of one foot or doing some type of jumps or a 360 spin before this, just to stress it from different angles. And I think this all speaks to the fact that this is a tough thing to learn and we try to use those things and especially manipulate the environment to at least somehow have the most difficult thing, which is have the practice environment simulate the game environment. All right, coach, our next starts of shit. <laughs> Start, starts of sit. Our next starts of sit. Well, that one is clear. To me. <laughs> we'll keep that in. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we won't edit that. Uh, sadly, I don't think that's my first time, Dan, making that yeah. uh, mistake. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Our next start sub sit for you, coach, is you have a non shooter on the perimeter. How do you like to use non shooters on the perimeter? Screener, 
cutter or to as a facilitator of a second action of DHO get into a secondary pick and roll? Good question again. Man, these are tough. <laughs> <laughs> Did I already say it depends? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> See, we used to use guys as cutters a lot. And I think last season we trended towards the screener. But I do like to use those guys as also what we call like, or what I call, which my brother laughs at, connective tissue players. Because these players are all oftentimes, they are very developed in other parts of their game. Otherwise, they wouldn't be BBL players for a club like ours. So they might have very good anticipation skills, very good passing skills can be like this can be that the guy is an athlete you know and doesn't have this but has some you know other very good things but the difficulty of this question is that we would do all of these three and it would come out of different situations and it would be applied directly with the context of the opponent yeah. so whatever hurts them the most and what gives us the best chance of winning we're gonna do that and we're not like bound by doing it one way i will tell you this that you can figure out the order but <laughs> we do start them as cutters then we probably go into the screening a little bit more and then if we have a player like this like i think a situation could be like as a facilitator so let's say we have a five or a four that's not a great shooter on the perimeter like we might still run a pick and pop for him like against the downing coverage yeah. to get to the second side with a little bit of advantage and them not being able to play their primary defense on this side. But this is, I think, conceptually much later on in the process, you know? So probably very hard to say like in which order, like who I would start sub or sit, but that's the order we kind of like you build up. Yes. Introduce these. Yep. So hopefully yeah. that is enough. No, that's <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. You're doing yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Coach, when you build up to maybe get into that secondary action, I'm always curious, is there a preference to go to a DHO to throw it and go to a handoff or to do like a in-between kind of toss? and kind of screen them. You already know what I'm going to answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in your ideal world. Yeah. In my ideal world, he's going to pass it straight away and go hit the screen. Why? I'll explain it because it means that the receiver's defender is not in a deny position mm -hmm. and he's already late for it. This oftentimes happened in our other early offense, the ball screen continuation where we're going side to side with like wing ball screens and we have the big guys moving in the Klotskalitsa, I think <laughs> in Serbo-Croatian. So they're moving up and down and then we have one of the players is a cutter or a screener and then there's two ball handlers. Some yeah. teams use three ball handlers. We've generally used like found ways to use two. So in that situation, if the player is not denied which means that maybe we take the low man and put him in a really in a bind yeah. where he's in a really difficult decision because he has to help on the roll from the other side. But when the ball is swung forward, we might skip it directly. So that's why I would probably start with, we're not in that segment anymore, <laughs> but, but that's what I would do. Yeah, I would yeah. start that one, the pass <laughs> I would start. So, so I would go with that and sprint to it. 
or even mm-hmm. take the shot or reject it, etc. So that's yeah. something, you know, we would do. Then if for any reason, you know, we haven't generated a smaller advantage, like then we would initiate with the dribble. And the read is pretty easy. Like if you see a dribble at and you're being denied, you should look to get back door out of it. So it should only be dribbled when there's no direct pass, because this is clearly a slower solution. And we try to Uh emphasize that speed kills in everything. And that uh, we use, we call a big camera that we have uh, like a three, not a 360 view that would be only reserved for owls, but (laughs) as like as much as possible that we're seeing as much as possible from the floor while we are catching it. So we're swinging. So the old, when I was playing, it was like catch, turn, and then make a decision. Like this is way too slow nowadays. So you have to make all of those three at the same time. And you have to have a body position that allows for you to first like observe what the defensive positioning is. And then you know where your offensive player is going to be based on the defensive positioning. So you can actually throw to a spot and then we will go from there. So I literally hate regular handoffs. I think they're terrible, you know, so I would then try to pitch it and especially like going downhill and try to pitch it a little bit, like go towards the defender of the guy who's going to get the handoff. So pitch it to him and kind of try to nail him there and create a, like a situation where the offensive guy cannot go under. Coach, why do you hate traditional handoffs? I just don't think they really produce a whole lot. Like the ones where you jump stop with the two feet and then you have the ball here on the side. I think that's one of the situations where we feel like we can get a lot of deflections, a lot of steals. And and I think our concept against that is very good. And I know teams use it, generally try to get downhill, which we look to deny, obviously, not to get there. But I just think it's like more of a like a east west than getting downhill out of that so it can yeah. put you in a good position for the rescreen because it will create initial separation between the ball handler's defender and the creator and the ball handler so that can be like its use but it has to be combined with something else in my opinion all right coach our next start sub these are actions for the inbounder on a silent out of bounds Okay, so your inbounder, things that you prefer to do with that inbounder after they throw it in on your sideline set. So after he throws it in, an immediate 45 cut to the rim from the inbounder, setting a flare for the inbounder immediately, or sending that inbounder right back in off of a DHO or some action following the ball, basically. So start, sub, sit, 45, flare, or DHO for the inbounder. Yeah. I mean, the 45 cut... We will not start with it for sure. It's like a very specific situation. It's like a special. I think Spurs ran Uh it really nicely with one of the bigs flashing to the high post. And then you would get a backdoor cut for Ginobili out of this. But it's something that more you got to catch somebody off guard. And it's generally something that doesn't work in the playoffs. So for sure, we will not start that. Flaring the inbounder, we've done this too. You need a good shooting inbounder. You need a good passer out of the post and you need a screener for that. It involves a couple of, you know, parts. There's moving parts in this one, but it can be very effective. I would say I would start with the DHO because it's quite robust 
you can put the ball into play, you can get the DHO, and you can run whatever you want to run. Then I would probably use the flaring the inbounder as the next one. And then the sit would be the, sorry to say, but it will be the 45 cut because a lot of that stuff like will not work in a game five on the road in the playoffs when both teams know exactly what the other team is running. And that's like something very specific and that's going to get you a bucket or six during the regular season. But at that point, when you need a basket, like they will be calling it the set out and they will know exactly what's going on. And so, so you need a big guy who can make a bounce pass, you know, with the, what do you call it? Like very close to the body, use misdirection. If you have this type of player, it can be, you know, very efficient, but I would still go with this order. With the reads out of the sideline out of bounds play, do you at all have reads based off of where the defender guarding the inbounder is standing? So if they're off, you know, say maybe trying to double, not let the ball in bounds, you would potentially run something different versus if they're right on top of the ball or they're off. Do you guys have reads or do you just run a set no matter what? No, we have reads out of this and they are something that also develops during the season because you know, like once uh-huh. somebody does this, I think we had last season like Ludwigsburg or somebody like jumped it. So jumped it from the inbounders guy, jumped to take the cutter coming out of like 45 or out of a staggered screen, something like this. Then we got momentarily stuck. So, you know, like these coaches are very good. They will smell blood right away. and You can expect to see this and get bullied by it until you fix it. So that's kind of, again, like the necessity driving the invention. So after that, you will come up with counters for that. Usually very simple ones that punish right away that make the other team say, okay, we're not going to want to do this again. So you really want to discourage them. And uh, yeah, that's how I would say it. You know that most of it is that first you have the question and then you have the answer but you have a basic template in the beginning for all of those situations, like the the most common situations, like let's say a zipper, like a four, one zipper with the five on the opposite elbow, which is pretty common one. Like what happens if the one is denied or they jump it out of the inbounder and then the four is denied? Well, you would have the five flash, for example, if the five is overplayed, he should look the back door. And at the same time, the opposite side wing lifts up etc. So something like this, that every part is kind of in sync. When you first put on that entry, it will look like everybody's running around like headless chicken. And then you (laughs) review it from the video and little by little, like it never goes like that right away. It's like, okay, this is great. Let's do this. All right, coach. Our last one, we've titled this unconventional leaders. So an unconventional leader starts subsit the rookie starter, the rotational player, seventh, eighth man, let's say, or a veteran bench player, not going to get a whole lot of minutes. Hmm. Okay. Well, this is simple. All right. We're definitely going to sit the rookie starter. He'll be overwhelmed already by the whole situation. He doesn't need, you made this too easy for me though. (laughs) We wanted to get you out here on an easy one. Yeah. The rookie starter is sitting. I mean, they generally have a lot of things already on their mind and you don't want to, you know, cause too much of a cognitive load for them then is we are going to uh, sub the aging veteran but there are big risks with this one and why because i went through it as a player and Mm -hmm. i thought i was at one point i was a very good captain 
for one of the Finnish teams. And the next year, I acted like that, you know? So yeah. there's a big difference in like earning every day that honor, you know, by your actions. And this is really what sports is about. It's about actions. It's not about like your status or anything like this. But I kind of went from a very good captain in my mind. Our coach can then, you know, agree or disagree. I went from a very good captain to a very poor captain. Because in the first year, I was really thinking about what's best interest of the team. And I wanted to prove that this is like I was the right choice. And I also had the same experience with Sebastian Herrera two years ago and who's still probably the best captain I ever had because he was, I think, 21 at the time and every day wanted to prove that he was worthy of that choice. And that's really what you're looking for in a captain. And with the aging veteran, you can run into a situation where you make a status call like this player should be because of this. No, the captain should be the one that embodies the DNA of the team and is an important player in the team, which already, you know, this guy is not playing anymore. So it's very difficult to have an important role. Shouldn't be the best player or the key player because they have to also carry a lot of responsibility at the end of the games, for example. And then the other part is you have to think like, what type of captain do you need? Do you need somebody who's social? Do you need like, we generally tend to choose somebody who embodies the DNA of the team, or maybe you want somebody with very good empathy or who can connect if there are other younger guys. So I would choose the rotational player. I would choose an important player that, you know, puts everything on the line for the team. Ken is, has got some balls also to disagree with me as a person that it's not an ass kisser, but somebody who will tell me the truth so we can have like real communication between each other for the good of the team. And I think then... You can have something like what I think Quinn Snyder said, that you can have like accountability can turn into an ownership, you know, that the players and the captain, that they kind of take over the process or feel like it's their responsibility to drive the process instead of the coaches who have probably laid the groundwork for that. But it doesn't happen if that choice was made because of a, something like past success or or status or somebody who's you know overwhelmed with the other stuff so this one was easy i appreciate it (laughs) (laughs) and to give you one layup yeah yes 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 (laughs) coach my quick follow-up and i think when me and dan were kind of formulating this one is how important is it to you that your leader be out on the court in crunch time. So, I mean, I think that's why we took out your best player or your key player and went with like a rookie, the bench or the veteran. So how much are you concerned with maybe if your leaders are more the guys who won't always be out there end of the game? Like I said, I prefer to have an important player for the team. Those are somewhat separate you know, situations like who's going to be on the floor at the end of the game is going to be decided by several things. So I don't really see it as being something that's very important. Okay. And I don't like equate the captaincy directly to the leadership. Like we should have several leaders, but most of all, we should have really good followers. Yeah. We have a lot of, a lot of leaders <laughs> and no, no followers. That's I think a worse combination. Yeah. So we should have a clear voice 
for us, it's oftentimes going to be the point guard at the end of the games who's going to be responsible for the huddles offensively and get everybody on the same page. We might shoot a look between us, you know, that we have to do this or in free throw, somebody might be closer to me. But I'm very much a believer in that they have the right to veto me. So mm-hmm. overrule me and do the stuff that they feel comfortable with because of the fact that they're the actual ones who are doing it. Now, sometimes this will lead to the same play or some wrong play playing played several times in a row and kind of getting stuck on something. And that's obviously, you know, that's always on me because I've created this framework for them. But I don't think it needs to be somebody who's on the floor, but I do think it needs to be somebody who's demanding towards the others. And generally the person with very high standards for himself and for others. There's a great book like the Captain Class that talks about the seven Mm -hmm. leadership traits, about the captains and what we equate with leadership, this like brash and bold and very like extroverted behavior is quite opposite of what the conclusions of that book are, where it's more, again, more about the actions, actions of the person and how he's willing to put the best of the team in front of maybe what's best for him. And this is why I would never feel if I have the right captain would never feel bad leaving him on the bench because he would know that it's being done in the best interest of the team. You mentioned that there was a year where you were a very good veteran leader and a year where you were not very good. I'm wondering when you maybe see those traits popping up in a player that you coach now, the conversations or things that you try to do to help them continue to be a good leader and not slip into maybe being a detriment to the team. I did apologize a couple of years ago <laughs> <laughs> to that coach. So if he's listening to this podcast, he knows I'm telling the truth. <laughs> uh, so I do have some integrity, you know, yeah. but when you're in that, yes, yes. sometimes it's, you don't know what you don't know. It's just this, You know, you think you're still doing the same thing, but you're not. And one of the things that like the values and and one of where the, I would say the difficulties for the players come in our program is that we are really honest people. We don't sugarcoat things. And if this is the situation, it needs to be discussed. This is the only fair way to do it because also for the player, and we explain this to them because if we don't tell it to them or we don't express like that we are, this is not good enough, how can they change? They cannot change. Then we are hoping for, and I noticed this you know, trend in myself when I was a younger coach that I would go like in the staff meetings, like, yeah, but this guy can't do that and that guy and he should be doing this. And then we were like, as a group, well, why don't we tell them what they actually need to do? You know, instead of being here, you know, feeling sorry for ourselves, you know, and saying like, this won't work, just tell them, hey, you got to fix this. Like right now, you're the weak link. Like it might be somebody might be the weak link defensively, other guy, you know, with the late game free throws, some guy might be the weak link because he's not pulling his weight as the captain where he would have that, let's say, aura or respect from the other players. So I think that's the big thing there. Well, coach, you're off the start subset hot seat. So (laughs) luckily I have my water bottle here. I can rehydrate right away. (laughs) 
Before we close here with our last question, just want to say thank you again for your thoughts and your time today. This has really yeah. been fun for Pat and thank I. So you. thank you very much. I got to say, I really enjoyed it. And like most human beings, I do these also for selfish reasons because they challenge me to also put some of my thoughts together. And this will help me as a coach. Then there's the other of paying forward. Like I told you guys pre-show also, you know, I've been a follower of you guys last couple of years. There's some very interesting stuff there. I think it's very important what you guys are doing. But most of all, like I said, we don't really have anything original. We maybe combine some different elements that others don't have these combinations, but everything has come from coaches that, you know, in our league or, or in Europe or NBA. And we've, you know, literally stolen those things and ran with it. And it was because they put it out there in terms of a clinic or in terms of allowing to go watch practices and something. And this is I think very important for the whole coaching fraternity that you also pay it back so we can have like better basketball. And in this way, also, it will continue challenging you as a coach, and which is not always comfortable, but we preach that to our players too every time that you got to get out of your comfort zone. And I think as coaches, I will definitely yeah. have some <laughs> challenges brought by this podcast in the next <laughs> season. So mission accomplished. I Thank you. Well, thank you, coach. Appreciate the kind words as well. And we'll get you out of here on this question. Uh, and it's something that we ask a lot of the guests, but it's what's been the best investment that you have made in your career as a coach? The best investment, this one might take some time. The best investment that I made was probably that I was a book nerd as a child and that I was crazy about sports, first sports. I was very curious about different things. And somehow, like at some point, it all started like it went from this very global curiosity to like a laser beam and it was pointing at basketball and the books that I read when I was a kid set up the foundation for what I was telling you guys about ability to make connections and to problem solve, be they, you know, novels or nonfiction or whatever, like sports books. But I have a very strong theory about this, that it's not, you know, I'm not a one book guy. It's like all of these books, they kind of, it's like a sculpture, which is you that's being hammered a little bit. And that shape is coming out. That's the way I approach books that you might take, you know, one thing from there. And then just the other, I'm going to give you two. So that's the one which kind of laid the foundation to have this problem solving mindset. But the other one is that I got very lucky that I got, you know, opportunities to coach in great places. I mean, there are so many really good and talented coaches. I got into a situation. I got picked up from Finland to go to Kraldsheim into a BBL team and an opportunity that nobody gets. And I knew I wasn't ready. I also knew that I can't pass up this opportunity. And I just try to make the best out of that experience. And I just kept telling myself it will not be because I'm not working hard enough or I'm not committed because this is what I always wanted to do even when I was a player. So we just worked and nothing will replace that experience of being in that pressure situation and feeling like you really got to come up with those solutions and 
all of our best, like quote unquote adjustments, they were never like something that I studied during the season. They were like, we got to fix this issue and we got to better do it fast, you know, or else our ass is out of this job. So those two, that you have a balance between the experience and then you have a platform that you can build upon, which is the theoretical knowledge that those go very much hand in hand. But nowadays, I'm obviously leaning more towards the reality part, the experience part, and that's driving it. But I try to still keep and build up that knowledge with the books and with everything else, with different materials, so that I have more connective tissue around my learning. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Coach Thomas Isalo. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, membership, videos, and more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Slapping Glass.